Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. Today we talk with Patrick Byrne, the founding CEO of Overstock.com, about how it is that blockchain is going to save the world. We also talk about the Grateful Dead, two of my favorite subjects. Check it out. Yeah. Uh, eventually, because I've been wearing them and giving them, giving them away. Facebook stalks me, and, and they know I'm a huge deadhead, so they, they sold me a shirt that, that says, Make America Grateful Again. In fact, I've worn it on this show. Have you? So, I love this. So you got that hat. It's funny, walking, going through airports, and of course, there are a certain number of Americans who think that this is, you know, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, that there are a certain number of Americans who think that wearing red hats is verboten these days. Yeah. Uh, and then you see these looks of anger, and then when people are smart enough to look closely, most of them light up. Isn't it? It's totally off track, but this idea that wearing a red hat somehow makes you a bad person. Oh, my gosh. The left has just gotten crazy with thought control and thinking that they can outlaw, you know, they, uh, that they can prohibit language. You know, for example, NPC. NPC is the most perfect meme ever. Does it hit the nail on the head what NPC is? And the left runs around and says, you know, the same folks who've gone around calling everyone that, that you know, throwing accusations of, of racism around like a Frisbee for two years say, oh, NPC is dehumanizing. It's, it can't be used. And all kind of, didn't Twitter and other people like make it impossible to say? Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe this happening in the United States of America and that more people, you know, it, it, are not protesting or upset about the corporate uh, distortion of the discourse. Here you go. This is a drinking show, by the way, huh. for those who wish to imbibe. And this is one of my favorite ryes. It's a little bit different, made by Angel's Envy. It's finished in Caribbean rum casks, so it's it's got sort of a sweeter finish to it. That's nice because the thing I've always not liked about rye whiskey is that it is it uh, a little raw, and yeah. being finished sounds good. Cheers. Lahayim. Make America grateful again. Right. This isn't a uh, sacred herb kind of. Oh, that's lovely. Isn't that that's nice? A, that's so nice. That's yeah. exactly. The, they have fixed the problem with rye. Yes. Rye is always has the. They have fixed the problem with rye. That's delicious. Go, why don't you give a plug again for this? Yeah, Angel's Envy, uh, finished rye. So if they can fix rye, I feel like we can fix the the fundamental problems that have plagued the, the classical liberal project for the last 2,000 years, uh, property and trust. Mm-hmm. And I want to dig totally into that, but, but why don't we take a step back and and just just establish some of your bona fides. You're right. the the founding CEO of Overstock.com, and so sort sort of a pioneer in e-commerce. And you were the first big commerce company to adopt Bitcoin as a means of payment in 2014. Actually, we were the first small one as well. The largest, the very first, the largest company taking Bitcoin at the end of December 2013 that I could find was a diner in Australia of $800,000 per year. Yeah. And people were talking about, gee, maybe in a few years we'll get to a $10 million enterprise, then a couple more years to 100 million, then a couple more years to a billion. 
Well, we stepped forward when the largest company in the world was an $800,000 a year diner. And we, at a billion four, started taking Bitcoin. So we like to think that we may have saved uh, the revolution five or six or seven years of adoption. Yeah. Well, that's that's and that's important to where you're going. And I, I want to get into to all of these blockchain innovations that that you're spending a lot of time and money on. But but you're you're kind of a, a classical liberal libertarian guy. That that framework has been with you since you were like in graduate school or something like that? Uh, actually, since college. I was sending $10 a year to this organization I'd read about in D.C. called Cato. Yeah. So about 10 bucks a year. Yeah. So so forever. I like to call myself what Milton did. Milton referred to himself as a small L libertarian, a small R Republican. I'll I'll buy into that. Um, but were you a deadhead or a, or a small L libertarian first? I was a deadhead first. I was a deadhead when I was 10. Yeah. I discovered the Grateful Dead in about 1972, and it's almost, it's hard to listen to anything else. Yeah. Did you have like an insane collection of shows and stuff like that? I went to several dozen. I have a brother who went to three or 400 shows. I wasn't nuts like that, but I went to a couple dozen. Yeah, Terry and I did maybe maybe close to 100. Did you really? It's something close to that, which is funny because I didn't do it as a kid. I did it after... I had a job so that I could afford to do it. So we would we would take vacations and go see like the the Boston shows, and they'd they'd play like eight or ten at a time. I've seen them in Boston, yeah. in Portland, Maine, Rhode Island, JF, uh, RFK Studio here, a stadium here a couple of times. I was in high school here, okay, in Bethesda. And I okay, came and saw them. I uh, I just uh, watched recently the the Grateful Dead documentary. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I hear it's quite good. Called Long Strange Trip. I've I've watched it several times. There's all sorts of stuff in there that I didn't know as someone that was fairly obsessed with the dead. And one of the things that that I didn't appreciate was uh, Jerry Garcia's insistence that he was not in charge of anything. He had a very mm -hmm. sort of anarcho-libertarian attitude about the community that that loved him and cherished him and followed him and they were they were all wanting him to tell them what to do. And he refused to do that, and and he was quite insistent on it, and and I think it was probably one of the reasons why the community and and the business model of the Grateful Dead was so robust. It, it was leaderless, mm -hmm. uh, very much in the sense a model for what what I would later sort of apply to some of my Tea Party stuff that I was doing. The spontaneous order. Well, the real thinking, you know, the origin of the Grateful Dead is quite interesting. Do you know the story? No. There was this wrestler from up north who just missed the Olympics. So, and in the early 60s, making the 60 Olympics. So he moved down to Stanford and started a degree in creative writing. And he was working in the V, he was living on Sand Hill Road. His name was Ken Kesey. And he was living on Sand Hill Road and working, going to Stanford, doing a master's in creative writing, working in the V, Menlo Park VA Hospital in the psych ward. And he started this term paper about life in a psych ward. He became swept up in some experiments called MKUltra. MKUltra were the CIA army experiments where they fed LSD to people, put you, give you 10 bucks, sit in a padded room in the Menlo Park VA Hospital, do LSD, tell us what you see. So this guy started taking part in it. And he had in one of his dreams, he had this idea of retelling the story 
that he was trying to tell the creative writing story from the point of view of a giant Indian. And that became the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Was, and, and he made so much money off that, it was his first novel, that he bought a farm over the hill in Woodside and it became a commune. And Ken Kesey uh, lived there, lots of other people, and they started having this Palo Alto garage band called the Warlocks come. And they were, LSD was legal. They were experimenting with, you'd go into a, you'd go into a concert, dip, there'd be a bucket of Kool-Aid at the front. You'd lace with LSD, you'd dip your finger in, lick it. And then they wanted music that was this very surreal music. And this, this garage band uh, played it for them. And over, uh, after a few months, they changed their name from the Warlocks to the Grateful Dead. But that's actually Jerry, uh, Bob Weir was a 16-year-old kid in Palo Alto. That's, it all grew out of that, of Ken Kesey. And that became the bridge from the beat movement to the hippie movement, was that was Ken Kesey and the Grateful Dead. And that was also the creation of acid rock. That's where the expression comes from, because you're putting your hand, in, you know, you're dipping your hand in acid and, and enjoying music that, uh, that kind of only makes sense to people who are tripping. Yeah, and he... Before that, Jerry was like a banjo player, right. and so he was like a he was a beat guy hanging out in that community, and it, it transformed into what became Haight Ashbury and all that stuff. Yeah, that's a cool story. I didn't know all that. And Kesey was very much one of us, and it shows up in his writing. You know, he wrote two fabulous novels. He wrote the One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest, which is man against the establishment, and the left loves that story. It's yeah. kind of consonant with their vision. But he wrote this other book called Sometimes a Great Notion, which is quite, you ever hear of that? Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Yeah, professors never teach that one because it's one much more open. It's about man standing up to society, to social pressure, to his neighbors and such. And be, uh, and it's not at all consistent with a lefty view. And so you see they never, in colleges and stuff, and every high school kids read One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, they never teach this other book, Sometimes a Great Notion, because it's, um, and anyway, Ken Kesey, I would say, although when, uh, uh, I would say it sure seems to me from his writings that he was, uh, that, he, that he, we would have found a fellow traveler in him. Yeah. Did you ever get to know John Perry Barlow? I had dinner with him a couple times back 18 years ago when I moved to... Salt Lake City, fabulous guy, inventive guy. I didn't like what he did after 9-11. And I have to say, I never had anything to do with him again after that. Do yeah. you know what he did after 9-11? Uh, no. Uh, he had a, he staged one of his happenings down at Ground 11 and kind of invited people. I guess he was saying, who knows what he was saying, but I didn't think it treated, it was immediately after 9-11. So you thought it was disrespectful. It was very disrespectful to the dead of 9-11. Yeah. And a lot of people, he lost a lot of friends there. A lot of, a number of people had nothing to do with him after that. And I was one of them. Hmm. So let's uh, let's pivot as much. I could actually spend two hours talking about the Grateful Dead. And and, and I think that would be the (laughs) the best show ever. (laughs) Um, Us and and three other people. But uh, I want to talk about about the sort of the Hayekian classical liberal vision. I, I saw a talk that you gave about a year ago that, that went all the way back to the Spanish scholastics, and I, I, I could never I knew I knew about the Spanish scholastics. Murray Rothbard taught me about them, but I didn't know the explicit link to the Austrian school of economics, which is of course uh, I, I swim in that in that intellectual. That's your mother's milk. Yeah, that's that's the best there is. <laughs> And it applies directly to, to everything we're seeing happening with technology and blockchain and how, 
how order might spontaneously emerge if we can solve the problem of trust. The, 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 the problem that we have always had has been about, about trust. Like how do you know that the person that you're dealing with is going to treat you fairly? And, and, the other, and part and parcel of that is, is how do you know that um, your property will be protected through that whole transactional process? Well, and you brought up, well, the liberal tradition or the classical liberal tradition, which I just call liberalism. I'm tired of apologizing. It's about time we claim our word back. Yeah, we've got to steal that us. word back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, actually, though I do take to calling myself pro-freedom, which ticks off some of my lefty friends. I always point out to them, look, you call yourself progressive. If you can steal the word progress, I get to steal the word freedom. Uh, they... Uh, the, the, the liberal tradition believes in rule of law, you know, rule of not, not rule by men, but rule of law. Well, if you have rule of law, you're only going to be as good as your institutions. Your institutions are what create rule of law. And there's a long and our long history of failure and our, and the reason for the failure was given in Federalist number 10, uh, or Shall I go? Am I going? Yeah, to yeah no, to, no. This is this is Federalist Number Ten. Our, our, you know, Madison in that case was writing. John Jay, Madison, and Hamilton were writing essays to try to convince their American uh, fellow citizens to endorse and and approve this new Constitution. And Federalist Number Ten has this very interesting statement where it says, "We studied all the previous attempts at democracy, ancient and modern." We looked at what made them fail. We designed this constitution to be to make it immune to those forms of failure. Unfortunately, there's one form of failure we didn't figure out how to fix, and it's the most common. It brings down democracy more than any other, and that is what what they what we would call capture or special interest, what they called faction. Uh, but that's what. That and they knew they hadn't fixed that problem—the problem of capture, the problem of regulatory capture and deeper capture—that intense, concentrated private interest in society capture these institutions that you and I are all counting on to create fair, neutral rule of law, and it gets captured. It's almost—it's kind of a inner. There's an intersection between our way of thinking and Marxism. Marxism, of course, had, that's how Marx saw the world. And yeah. Yeah, like um, I, I had uh, one of my progressive friends on this show, and we we argue and debate about about power. He's more worried about concentrated corporate power, and I'm more worried about concentrated government power. But there's you know properly understood you know regulatory capture and how it is that that special interests can hijack the process and game the system and rig it against the rest of us um, should be something that that honest people on the left and the right and libertarians could actually agree on because you, you see it play out. Um, you're a huge critic of, of, of Wall Street gaming the system. Um, it, it, sometimes you sound more like Occupy Wall Street than, than a Republican. Well, I sometimes am, I kind of was a one-man Occupy Wall Street from 04 to 08. Before it was cool. Before it was cool and then everyone else showed up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, so what do you what do you want me to respond to out of all that? That's I don't know. That point. wasn't a question, was yeah, it? No. They, they yell at me because they don't ask questions. But I, I, like I think it. I'm happy to sit and drink rock with you. I'm talk. just curious the this 
you know, we're we're at this process where uh, Republicans have always said that they're for limited government and that they're for free enterprise, and and Democrats have always said that they're for the people, but the the political outcomes seem to entrench power of of special interests, and it's is it's James Madison's worst nightmare. Um, and I I feel like if if the world ends today, we have to say, you know what, uh, representative democracy failed because because of those concentrated interests. We, it would certainly it wouldn't be an easy uh, you know twenty years ago people thought history had ended because it had become clear that representative democracy was the only thing that worked. And yeah. now, so something definitely has gone wrong in the last 20, 30 years with us. Yeah. But the, but the counter-revolution is, is something that, that John Perry, Perry Barlow referenced in the, in the 1990s, the, the, the revolution of the internet and the democratization of knowledge and the ability of people to find stuff out. And this is long before blockchain and, and Bitcoin. And and he had sort of this romantic idea. Information needs to be free, or wants yeah, to be that free. that we we all had the right to know, and and it wasn't like a it wasn't a positive right. It was the ability to go out and find stuff out. And I feel like the Tea Party and the Ron Paul movement, uh, Bernie Sanders, even Donald Trump, are all part of this process of 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 political disintermediation, where we don't neatly fit into one or two boxes that was decided behind closed doors by some by some shady power. Right. Um, but we're not there yet. If anything, um, it feels like things have gotten worse because of democratization. It feels like everything's clickbait and silos and and people sort of angry at each other. But you would argue that blockchain is the solution to all of this. Blockchain uh, may, in fact, be a solution to all this. It may, in fact, be. Yeah. Let's... Um, before we get into that, because you've you've made a, a major investment in in a lot of uh, startup technologies that that could be fundamentally transformational, but but let's assume that everybody listening to this has a at best um, simple understanding of blockchain and and Bitcoin. Like so, explain to people what that is and how this technology solves that the problem we referenced earlier about. A, questions of property rights and trust. I will do so. First, let me give you a response to your friend who believes that we need strong muscular government to stand up to muscular corporations. Ask your friend, what happens when that strong muscular government becomes a wholly owned subsidiary of Goldman Sachs? Yeah. Now you got the worst of both worlds. And that's what happens. <laughs> oh, yes. As, 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 yeah. So that, and that's what happens. And that's what happened. And so forth. How will blockchain fix that? Because and now we have these institutions that as strangers want to engage in consensual exchange, we can't trust each other. So we each just trust the institution. We trust the land titling office. We trust the Mint. We trust the Visa card company. We trust Airbnb. We trust Uber. These are all just institutions that let strangers do something together. Well, those institutions have over time, the middle man who injects that trust, they have a way of extracting more and more over time and, and becoming predators, perhaps. Um, blockchain lets us re-architect this whole system. All we need is a ledger. And so imagine there's a magic ledger, like your granddad ran his hardware stores out of, and and... 
It's a it's magic because it is first there are copies of it all over the world. And when you change it one place, it instantly changes everywhere else. Secondly, it's cryptographically protected so that no one can cheat, no one can put something in secretly, no one can change anything secretly. Well, if you had such a system, if you had such a magic ledger, you could recreate all kinds of social processes which currently depend on that third party institution for us to trust. And instead, we can have a ledger that becomes the object of our trust and we know that mathematics is keeping it right. So it isn't something that the bad guys can capture. So if the Achilles heel, as we've been discussing, if the Achilles heel of liberalism is our dependence on these institutions and those institutions are capturable by removing things to the blockchain you and to these magic ledgers, you vastly reduce the scope for the predators to rent seek on society. You can fire the middleman. Yeah. Get rid of the middleman my whole life. Yeah. It's my you, motto. You get rid of the middleman and, and all of the unintended consequences of, and you know, Madison was worried about this. You, you give government that much power and it's going to turn into something else, regardless of your best intentions. Yeah, you know, I used to think that there might be exceptions to that. I used to think that, for example, I have great, um, we probably differ a little bit on national security. I'm actually a big national security guy. I think that that the world is a very dangerous place and what we have in the United States is very special and we have to be, I'm, I'm very serious about national defense and I've always seen national security as outside as, and the people involved as outside the general hue and fray of, of politics. It's getting harder and harder to believe in that vision of our national security apparatus, and I'm really, uh, I'm really sad about that. Yeah, well, the the dilemma for, like, if you're a constitutional conservative or a libertarian, the dilemma for us is that we understand government failure, and we understand how power corrupts, and it happens perhaps especially in in these functions that are so vital. So you get. You get a situation where the decisions made by um, the military actors, the national defense, I, I call it the military-industrial complex, but that's, that's more of a pejorative way of saying it. Um, they're not necessarily making rational decisions just based on what's good for national defense. They have all these other incentives that they deal with, including regulatory capture with defense contractors and, and now Silicon Valley. Like, there's... There's a lot of problems there mm -hmm. that would be that that would be at least limited if if there was a party that was willing to say, you know what, we should probably be as stingy with our defense dollars as we are with domestic spending. First of all, in the you mentioned the military. I do not believe the military is the problem in the national defense industry. I think the military, from my interactions with them, and I have them from time to time socially and, and such around D.C., and, and I'm also on the Council on Foreign Relations. Don't shoot me, but I'm on the council, and I like the council. So I've, we'll, I, we'll let you stay. We've had, I've had a couple decades of interactions with them. I find them the most sensible people in Washington. And by the way, it's nothing like the movies. The military people are the sensible, careful, modest Let's be careful. Let's not let's make sure we're not, you know, the people who by instinct follow the Hippocratic oath that, you know, first do no harm. That's the military. It's the idiot. It's the guys who are not in the military 
the various ideologues of different kind who I think are the real problem. Yeah. And yeah, the military, God, you know, I don't care if the next president has uh, shoulder boards and four stars on them compared to uh, any of the political class we have going. Yeah. Let's talk about um, your vision for the future and, and how it is that, that blockchain technology could could solve a lot of these problems and, and, tr- and truly limit the size and scope of government by getting rid of the middleman. Um, you've, you've talked about a tech stack for civilization. Right. A blockchain tech stack for the civilization. You do your homework. And you have, uh, you've, you've been investing in a, in a number of, of, of startup companies um, that you're, you're almost sort of uh, reverse engineering Hayek's understanding of, of institutions that have spontaneously emerged to solve problems. And, and, and because of, of 2,000 years of, of experience, we know what those institutions are. And, and now you've said, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to create a blockchain solution that makes those institutions function in a, in a, in a radically efficient way. Right. Yeah. Well, we can, a lot of the function of those institutions can now be achieved effortlessly and costlessly through blockchain. Yeah. And also most importantly, give us an outcome, which we now know is guaranteed by math. We, you know, we found out 10 years ago, I think, that in the financial crisis, if people weren't living under a rock, realized that the oligarchy can buy themselves politicians, they can buy themselves regulators of different kind, they can buy themselves journalists, they can buy themselves justice in various ways. But even they cannot buy themselves the laws of mathematics. And so by, by rebuilding these things on, on th- uh, through cryptographically protected algorithms that execute and such, rather than on institutions that we all depend on to keep honest, I think it'll be a big step forward. Well, there'll be a lot less, you know, who was it? Mark Twain or somebody said, trust everyone but cut the cards. This is gonna, you know, this is gonna be a permanent card cut. Uh, and on the old way of doing things. Well, let's talk about some of those institutions. Uh, the obvious first one would be money, and and everybody knows about Bitcoin, but you're you're critical of of Bitcoin tourists who don't fully appreciate the fact that that this isn't really about Bitcoin. It's yeah. not really about like the the investment value of Bitcoin six months from now. Right. It's about the independence of of the management of the value of money separate from the Federal Reserve. Exactly. It's very similar to our instinct as Austrians for gold. You know, Keynes thought that we who believe in gold are fetishistic. And he had some Freudian interpretation that it was actually like our shit and we were children and needed to touch it or something. It was really weird. (laughs) Uh, You know, he doesn't... Well, Keynes was kind of weird, dude. Yeah. Yeah. You know what his dying words were, though? You got to give him this. What were his dying words? I don't know. I wish I had drunk more champagne. <laughs> words to live by. Yes. Yeah. Not as good as uh, Oscar Wilde's, though. Yeah. We'll get back. Um, so uh, where were we? Sorry. We were talking about, about money in the Federal Reserve. Yeah. That the, 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 the reason that people like us like gold, I believe deep down, is that, at, like gold as a, not just personally to have, but as a standard, is that 
gold is something that no government Mandarin can can sign something and create a new block full of gold. Where yeah. yes, you can with a fiat currency. Yeah, and we like that. Now, you gold can't, you can't print gold. You can't print gold. Now, the yeah. the disadvantage is, especially in today's age, we can't beam gold. You know, across, around the country, actual gold. So, what's beautiful about blockchain-based currencies is you can have that limited supply, you can have something that cannot be increased through the signature of a government Mandarin, that it is a, uh, that is the nature uh, that they have to, no government Mandarin can write something and change mathematics. Yeah. And so since these, since Bitcoin is based on mathematics, they can't control or alter the supply. And which means we end up with what we've always wanted, a, a form of communicating to each other information about value and scarcity without it going through some medium that government people can dial up and down to distort our signals to each other. And and despite what Keynes argued, um, you know, spending against future generations and monetizing that through the, the, the manipulation of, of money and credit is, is the most regressive, disruptive, uh, devastating thing to economic progress. And, and that was sort of the Austrian critique of the business cycle and how it distorted price relative prices and all that stuff um, that should be something that that our friends on the left would appreciate going back again to to capture like like who controls the process by which we decide that we're going to put all these toxic assets at the Federal Reserve it's insiders it right. sure as heck wasn't me as Matt Taibbi said it's the the bailout was rich bankers bailing out rich bankers on yeah. your credit card yeah it was a beautiful line. It was true. It's crazy what we did in 08. I believe that when the guy, you know, when a fellow has a cardiac arrest and is on the ground, you got to do something. There was a point in September of 2008 that the financial system had frozen and the government had to step in and guarantee the settlement system. Otherwise, we were in cardiac arrest and everything would have collapsed. However, the subsequent endless gifts and bailouts is just... It, you know, it's going to saddle us with that forever. And it, I think it was a horrendous mistake. And what they should have done is rather than ring fence the center of the financial system and say, we, the federal government, are going to guarantee this. And then they let everything else burn away, the small and midsize people outside that. What they should have done is built the fence and said, we're going to make sure this burns first. And they should have supported the regionals. Yeah. Now, the counter argument against that is that society gains in efficiency by allowing there to be these enormous banks. You gain efficiency because you don't need, you know, two executive teams. And that all turns out to be total nonsense. I saw Simon Johnson from formerly the IMF, now MIT. He has quoted a study. I think it was done by the IMF about the expense ratios of banks as they get bigger. And the interesting thing is once they get to be a relatively small size, 50 or 60 billion, it's not a huge bank these days. Once they get to that size, they gain nothing in efficiency as they get better, as they get bigger. There's, it's, so the whole justification for the way we went about the 2008 cleanup is, I think, fallacious. So what are the, what are the cryptocurrency pieces of this, this tech stack that you're talking about? Well, crypto, blockchain, fits into all six layers. Uh, it fits into identification. You want there's going to be a, a blockchain identification to the world somewhere in the future. Um, 
the la blockchain of blockchain land governance system, not to replace the title office, but basically to take out the back end of the title office and and the the paperwork and the opportunities for mischief. We have announced that we are working on for Rwanda. A Rwanda has titled up eight million properties within Rwanda. We are building for them a uh, a system, an online system that everyone in Rwanda will be able to go to, buy and sell property to each other, arrange inheritance, do all that kind of stuff through this online system. So that is blockchain guaranteed. Uh, and we're doing, we're introducing blockchain elsewhere in land governance. And that's sort of, that's sort of inspired by Hernando de Soto and, and the whole idea that, that, that you need title to property in order to, to achieve the the real benefits of a market economy. Well, it turns out that that is an idea that the World Bank has been flogging since the 70s. Uh, Hernando came along somewhat later and joined in the World Bank's program, but the World Bank has been on that. But it is that idea that once you have land titling, all kinds of social progress, all kinds of economic activity begins. I have a deed that I can take to a bank and borrow some money and buy a cart and start a business, something like that. That doesn't, uh, uh, that, that vision is really, and, and one has to give credit to DeSoto. Well, he certainly popularized uh, through a couple books, this vision that real economic, that what, what made capitalism work in the West and fail everywhere else, as he wrote in one of his books, is that we got land governance correct. But it's a, um, it's a blockchain solution to the age-old problem of enforcing property rights and assigning property rights. Exactly. And, and getting rid of all of the corruption. We had Maget Wade on this show oh, I know uh, just a bit ago, and we, and we were talking about a lot of this stuff and, and how the, the, the challenge in Africa is the lack of the rule of law. And, and property rights are... Is, are a fundamental part of that. The first step. So you're talking about something that's that's insanely transformational for places like Rwanda, right? Um, that it's, is that is all potential, but they 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 don't have those rights right now. Right. We're doing it in Zambia now. We have a th we've done fifty thousand households. I think we're doing another quarter million. I think that's going to spread across Africa. I have. People contacting me, I won't tell you the institutions, but saying, Patrick, when can you get on a plane? I've got 54 nations and 1.8 billion people in Africa waiting for you to get on a plane and bring this stuff. I keep saying, Let me fi let's finish the products. But once I get the products done, we'll go. I'm going to be going to Bermuda. In fact, I'm thinking there's a wonderful premier there named David Burt. Quite ironic, quite ironic that because my brother was a Bermuda, my brother left America 30 years ago, gave up his citizenship and became a Bermudian. Yeah. And he was a guy about politically like I am. And he, but he made the, the Bermuda elected a lefty, a, a left part, you know, a people's party kind of thing. And my brother ended up working with him very successfully. Uh, and it was quite strange. He helped them. He advised them. They made him the head of the, the chair of the Board of Education of Bermuda. Anyway, my brother, who's like an arch libertarian, he's now passed. He's a was a wonderful fellow, my favorite human being, frankly. He died a couple of years ago. He uh, he had this wonderful relationship with his lefty government of Bermuda, and they did great things. 
Well, the the successor of his partner is a young man named David Burt, Premier Burt. And ironically, that he has come to me. So it's my my Mark's little brother, me, and the success. We have formed a partnership, and you may see us in Bermuda to the extent they they say that they want it, that uh, we will use Bermuda as a prototype test bed, so to speak. As we are rolling out these products, we're going to be bringing them into Bermuda. I think a a country with 60,000 people in it is probably a better place to test these and get them right rather than take them to a country with 100 million people in it. Yeah. And But that 100 million people is right. The countries with 100 million people are calling us and saying, when can you get here? When can you get here? But we're trying to be, I'm trying to be responsible. Um, voting, voting is another piece. Um, everybody in this town, uh, left, right, and center, is obsessed about about voter fraud and, and um, limited access to voting, whatever it is. Nobody really trusts the system that we have, and there's there's good reason not to when you look at things that happen on a regular basis in terms of not counting ballots or stuffing ballots or yeah. hanging chads, all that stuff. Have you heard? Uh, the, have you ever run into the NPCs who, as soon as you bring up voting, they say, "Well, what's the evidence that there's voter fraud?" That's the NPC me line that they yeah. are taught. Well, because all attempts to gather the evidence and gain and and formulate evidence are are rabidly fought against. And then they say, yeah, but where's the proof that there is something? Well, let me tell you, anyone who's worked in politics, as you have at the grassroots level, people are nuts if they don't think that there's voter fraud. There is so much voter fraud, I believe, on both sides. I think whoever, whichever party controls the booth, that you know, if somebody uh, smudges their finger with ink, they can stand there and, and do some things with your ballot that make them unreadable and get your ballot rejected. So if they think that you're not in their party... That, there's anyone if who, you wear a red hat, you're probably suspect. You're probably well, or it could be Republicans doing yeah. it too. Except my red hat, I just want to point out, isn't the typical red hat. Right. Um, it's a totally legit hat. It's a legit hat. It's funny. Sometimes I wear one that says "Make Bitcoin Great Again." Yeah. Um, For those of you listening, it says "Make America Grateful Again," and has a little Grateful Dead smiley. Yep. yep. Steal your face. Steal your face, Steely. Um, well, so I think there's much more voter fraud than people understand is there. And there may be voter intimidation. Uh, I mean, I think that some of the things are ridiculous, like we can't expect people to have a government issued ID is ridiculous. Uh, but anyway, that can all be fixed through blockchain. You're going to have a, an app on your phone that you vote through. And it is blockchain secure, blockchain guaranteed, biometrically tied to you, so no one can vote your vote. You know, the people who say, who talk about voter suppression, i.e. the left, and but they don't want to talk about voter fraud, seem to forget that there's really a couple ways I can suppress your vote. One is I keep you away from the voting booth because I, and I do things like, uh, you know, these crazy things that they used to do in the Jim Crow South to keep black people away from the voting booth. Um, you, know, you have to recite the Constitution word for word, you know, backwards or something. Uh, but there's another way to suppress your vote, and that is let me submit an extra vote, and that ca- that offsets your vote. If I do that, if I get to f- submit a fake vote, I get to suppress your vote just by canceling it out. They don't seem to be very concerned about that kind of voter fraud, yeah, uh, or voter suppression, I should say. They don't care at all about that kind of that every fake vote 
suppresses somebody's legitimate vote. So it's just a different kind of suppression. So I think we ought to have no voter suppression and no voter fraud, and we can achieve that through an app on your phone. There's a company called Votes that we are backers of that is a uh, that has a blockchain voting app for your phone. West Virginia used it last November for the first federal election ever. Uh, and Denver, just a week or two ago, announced that they are now going to use it for their next municipal election. I suspect the entrance is going to come on the back of ADA, Americans with Disability Acts. There will be states, disabled people will start saying, you know, I'd like to have that voter app and my phone. Pardon me. And over time, I think that'll be the next breakthrough that we'll start having states across the country let their ADA people vote through it. And then it'll that's the, you know, it'll just break up. And ho- one hopes that within a couple election, a couple few election cycles, everyone gets a chance to vote through their app. When that happens, there is no voter fraud. There is no voter suppression. So right now, um, Nancy Pelosi is is pushing this idea and I, I think it's just virtue signaling to her base but she wants 16 year olds to vote and I don't know if if having 16 year olds voting is a good idea or a bad idea but but I do know that she probably only wants that because she thinks that would produce more Democrat votes in the short right. run so that the trade-off for both parties is you're gonna if you make it easier for people to vote you'll probably get more voter participation you'll get more democracy. Um, but there'll be fewer dead people voting, and and there'll be people voting only once, and presumably um, only people that are qualified to vote get to vote. So it, it's kind of a wash, and, and I wonder how the, the two parties sort of react to the idea of making it easy and honest for everyone to cast a vote. My impression is the... Democrats want it easy and the Republicans want it honest. Yeah. So we can do both. Yeah. And it's probably a wash in terms of the the short-term political consequences. Political scientists say that the people who don't vote split about the same proportion as the people who do. So it isn't like there's some that it was going to radically change results and it's going to bring in a bunch of Republicans who have never voted before, Democrats who don't normally vote. It's not going to do that. Uh, it is going to be interesting. My guess is that there's a one or two, they say that there's a one to 2% overvote in America, that if you count the number of people who enter a polling booth and it is X, and you look at how many votes that polling station submits, it's on average 102% of X. Yeah. So uh, I think, that I, and if that 2, 2% is a large amount, you know, the game is not played between the goal lines. It's played between the two 45-yard lines. At the margin. Yeah. And yeah. so that's all elections are over that last 10%. If you can steal 2% of the vote, that's a huge edge. Yeah. That'll all come to an end. So it is kind of a question who's going to fight blockchain voting the most. It, well, I, 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 I'll predict that Nicolas Maduro will fight first. And, yeah. And, you know, we, we think about uh, the voting problems we have in this country, but, you know, the, the problem— in, in other countries, particularly in places like Venezuela, where he clearly would not survive a legitimate vote. Um, that's where you have this sort of transformational um, institution building kind of dynamic for that, I think. Yeah. It, that may be, I think it is going to happen. 
Well, I think it's got to happen in the U.S. first for some reason with the voting. I, it's so maybe it's because we're so identified with democracy. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to. There doesn't seem to be signs to me that it's going to pick up anywhere yeah. until it picks up here. And it'll be a few cycles as it keeps picking up and breaking through. But I think it may. You know, one can only speculate. Uh, it will eliminate this kind of fraud. It will not. It'll eliminate different things. Maybe new kinds of fraud emerge. Maybe people come to your home and hold a gun to your head and make you. I don't know. Different things could happen that we're not. Maybe all kinds of people who never voted before start voting. But you will end up with voting that more truly reflects the true desires of the people. Now, that's not always. I mean, the the true desires of the people can not. Always yeah, we'll be find right. out what that is. Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't necessarily know. So, so we've talked about voting, we've talked about money, we've talked about property. Uh, the big daddy for you is capital markets and, and how capital is, is traded and how those markets clear. Talk about, talk about the blockchain solution for that because you think that's sort of the linchpin of the whole deal. It is the linchpin, yeah. Capital formation is you know where human capital and financial capital meet. It's so important. And capital formation is currently runs through if you've a system that only evolved in the 1970s, and it's a crazy system. And it's because the previous system we had, which was guys running around Wall Street with sacks of stock jobbers running around among brokerages uh, with stock certificates, really seized up by the end of the 1960s. The the volume on in American exchanges quadrupled. The guys, the stock jobbers running around with the bags of certificates couldn't keep up. The industry wanted to go to a direct peer-to-peer settlement system. The government uh, said the technology isn't ready, and they created this other system. It's very arcane, not going to go into, but it has. it's nothing like people think it is. When you and I, if I, if you sell 100 shares of IBM from your Charles Schwab account and I buy 100 shares... You know, you might imagine that there's one process going on, some certain process by which the shares are moving. No, 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 no. It's this crazy process that's unlike anything you're imagining. And in that process is there's a great opportunity for mischief. And and some of what happened in 08 was a bubbling to the light of that mischief. It's all in the settlements. It's not all. A bunch of the mischief is in the settlement system. Um and they, uh, what this does is it takes away the settlement system. See, if you and I do a trade on the New York Stock Exchange today, it's three days after our trade that the actual money in stock changes hand. And it's, it does throw through a completely different system. What blockchain does is let us reunify that settlement and the original trade. And once you unite them, a lot of the opportunity for mischief goes away. So there's that mischief. There's a lot of rents in that in that mischief. What happens to all that extra money that's sloshing around in the current system? It gets turned into mansions and Lamborghinis in the Hamptons. You're, in fact, there's a very interesting lawsuit that's been filed a year year and a half ago by a bunch of um, pension funds who have figured out. Basically, that the stuff I was saying in 05, 06, 07 was correct. And they have figured it all. And they're filing, I think it's the first trillion dollar suit has been filed against 
bunch of these prime brokers who have figured out really a great deal of the revenue of the industry of prime brokerage, which is Goldman and people like that, a great, a shocking amount of the revenue actually comes from from this this settlement stuff and not from Wall Street that you think is paying the rent on Wall Street. So we'll be going directly after the really the main revenue sources of the biggest Wall Street companies. Yeah. <laughs> how, how are they going to respond to that? What, what happens when the empire strikes back? Well, 12 years ago, I took on Wall Street and the SEC came after me with six investigations, one after the other. I've tried to be friends with the SEC these days. Sometimes they make it Sometimes they make it easy, sometimes they make it hard. But I became the object of six SEC investigations. Three of them went nowhere, and they had to give us letters that say we drop, which they hate doing. And three of them resulted in trivial, and by uh, by trivial I mean restatements of the form of four-hundredths of a percent of revenue or something. I'm just, no one's, they've never, they've never done anything like this, making, so, uh, 12 years ago, it was clear that the prime brokers owned the SEC. And when I gave them trouble, they picked up the phone on speed dial and the SEC uh, came after me. There were individuals at the SEC. What I've never talked about publicly is there were individuals who I understood to be personally short or have personal positions in our stock and hence have incentives to derail us making decisions about our uh, our fate. However, it's a different SEC is how I feel most days. It actually, I can know, this is the truth. The SEC is so much better than it was a decade ago. And I got to say under George Bush, it was Bush and Chris Cox and they were, it was, I don't know if he was an ideologue or what, but the SEC was terrible. It is, I must begrudgingly, begrudgingly admit, it's a much better organization than it was a decade ago. Not perfect, but significantly better and I feel significantly better about our country and the state we're in than because of the the SEC today versus 10 years ago. Now you've said that 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 regulators and 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 FINRA and all of the people that decide whether or not this stuff is okay they're they're generally sympathetic to what you're trying to do here. Well, they're not homogeneous. But there are regulators in actually I'm kind of shocked. The SEC is there they've been actually very professional. Uh, they've there are the people in in the regulate and FINRA. I remember a meeting with FINRA and you can just kind of see the lights go on around the room. It's the people who care about enforcing the rules, like who truly care, and it's the people who care about systemic risk. Both of those kind of people really want blockchain because blockchain takes away a great deal of systemic risk and blockchain uh, lets the regulators. You'd be shocked at how and here I didn't think I would defend the SEC. You'd be shocked. At we'll how, have to edit this part out. Yeah, yeah. At how hard it is for them. If they see an illegal trade in the market occur, you would think that they could just call up an exchange and say who's behind that trade. Yeah. Turns out they can't. They do something called blue sheeting. They issue a blue sheet they to the exchange who's behind that trade and they try to trace it. But the trades disappear into this mist of netting and pre-netting and slicing and dicing. 
after 08, Congress mandated to the SEC, you have to develop a consolidated audit trail, CAT. I think they allocated a half a billion dollars for it or something. Last I checked, 10 years had gone by and over a billion dollars had been spent and they had gotten nowhere, nowhere whatsoever. You switch to a blockchain capital market and that consolidated audit trail just falls out for free. We can give the SEC a window into the market at the atomic level of the market and understand every trade, you know, netting, pre-netting, et cetera. So it really solves the problems for the people who want to enforce the rules. And there are many at the SEC. That may surprise you to know. And it, it, it's great for people who care about systemic risk. So all of these things in this tech stack are pretty radically transformational and and you seem sort of uh you seem particularly driven to like like get to the point where this stuff is is operational was it at all driven by by your frustration with with politics as normal and and seeing that the systems themselves could not be reformed like we're never going to end the fed uh, we got $22 trillion in debt. Uh, the debt for last month, February, was $234 billion. For one month. One month. I'm old oh. enough to remember when that was an annual deficit and it was a problem. Ah. Well, I'm old uh, enough to remember when we had a balanced budget. Yeah. Well, the that's... late 60s and briefly under Clinton. Yeah. So so, so clearly the systems that, that Madison was worried about are not functioning um, but but you're saying just do an end run around all that, right? Yeah, just just, just hack it, hit the thing and shoot the thing in the head, and start again with an alternative that's simpler, cleaner, incorruptible, far cheaper. You know, it now it dist- it it takes a lot of people who currently have their snout in your pension funds, and it ruins their day. Yeah, uh, but that's. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering about the blowback. And, yeah, it's, I know. think it's immense. Well, what I'm afraid of is that there are, I'm afraid of powerful concentrated forces who do have friends at the SEC who want to get me shut down. And I, I guess I, I've tried to be a great citizen for the last few years and say nice things about the SEC. You have no idea how much I've been over and tried to help. Uh, and I'm disappointed to discover that I do think that there are powerful concentrated forces who probably have a bigger voice than they should within the, the SEC and are trying to get the SEC to uh, do things regarding me and my projects and my progress that I wish they didn't. So there may be some sort of, I think there's a Gotterdammerung coming of kind in our society. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, the Ragnarok, the great, the great, Twilight, the battle of the gods at the end of history. I think there's something like that coming where either we liberate our country or we lose it for good. Yeah. So that, I believe that too, which is why I do some of the stuff that I do. But I, I, I'm an optimist about it. Like, I think there's something really cool that's about to happen. And it's, it's probably not, um, it's probably not through normal political channels, it's got to be this other thing. It's got to be people and innovation. And um, uh, one of my friends calls it permissionless innovation, Mm -hmm. a way that you might just fix things for yourself. In Africa, for instance, could we 
could we just go ahead and do it even though we can't actually fix the political institutions per se? Well, I want to move to Africa. I'm, I think that I'm probably going to be getting a house or a compound in Africa. Guy, Have you heard of a fellow named Akon? No. There's a fellow named Akon who is quite a good guy, Senegalese, American. I've gotten to know some. He's coming out to see me next week. He's evidently, and I don't follow the music scene. I'm I'm stuck at the Grateful Dead. Yeah. This fellow is evidently like the number six global celebrity. Okay. Music. And he's a wonderful, smart, decent, very good human being. I like I like him. And we're, uh, we might be doing something. I could move to Africa and spend the next five years just focusing on getting these things installed. I think we can change, like lift billions of people out of poverty in five years if I can get the feds off my back and get things going. Uh, this stuff can all be built and rolled out over five years and change. I mean, when I was a grad student studying economics, I remember this development economist. It's really, I can save you. I can say, I had a wonderful experience at Stanford. I'm not one of those academic bashers. I had one of the great experiences of my life at Stanford in philosophy department and I got where I got my PhD, but I did all this development economics. And there, I remember this woman, a professor, talking about how many tens of millions of, this is about 1980-something, early 80s, mid-80s, how many tens of millions of tons of copper it was going to take to wire up India so every home and every, every hut and every village had a phone. Well, you know, it's like 50 million tons of copper, I seem to remember, was the calculation. Well, and cell phones came along, and they just leapfrog that whole step. Same thing's going to happen with institutions. For 70 years, we've been telling the developing world, copy our institutions, copy our, copy our Wall Street, copy our Citibank, copy our SEC, copy all these institutions. They can actually now, that's like telling them, you know, put in millions of copper wire phones. They can jump. We have a blockchain central bank. Now, a pure such as you, it will say, I'm consorting with the devil. Why do a blockchain central, why do any central bank? But as long as, you know, that's one, let's get the elephants, I mean, the camel's nose under the tent. We, we have a blockchain central bank now. We just announced a deal with the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank, which, and we can go in with a laptop, tell the central banker, here's how you now issue currency on the blockchain. Everyone in the country just downloads a free app on their phone, and suddenly you have leap you have leapfrogged, leapt frog, I guess, the and have the best financial system in the world, a frictionless electro pardon me, electronic financial system. We could go to Venezuela, and I hope we do when that place collapses. That uh, and it's so sad, so sad. I happen, it's so sad what's happening in Venezuela. It kills me. Uh, we could go there and implement this system, and in six hours, you know, when their financial system collapses, as it will, we could go in with a laptop and this system, everybody download a free app, and suddenly they would have the most uh, advanced financial system in the world. And the central banker could control his currency and surveil his uh, – we get better economic stats than anything currently going in addition – uh, imagine you have that world and then everyone just downloads another app, which is a f another free app, which is a peer-to-peer -peer lending app. You would now have a situation where poor people could actually save and share money, loan money, you know, all this kind of uh, borrow money, all, all, on, all through apps with no Citibank, 
with no institutions that no copying of you know of the american system it would just be a matter of some free apps they download on the phone and a single laptop sitting in the central bank where when the guy wants to print more money it's typing some things in and it gets spit out on the blockchain that's a we could save i mean i feel like i'm in this rush against time because there are countries which totally collapsing countries, those failed states like Venezuela and others around the world where there are muted conversations going between us already about this possibility. We are within a month or two from being able to do what I just said, go into a Zimbabwe or well, uh, go into a Syria and say, here's your thing. Tell everyone in the country you just download this app and suddenly your old country's running again. It's, it's going to be great. I've probably said this three times. It's it's transformational. Yeah. I, uh, final question, and then we'll drink more off camera. Okay. Um, you, you don't have anything to smoke, do you, Matt? N- well, we, we'll see. House, probably. We'll see. What are the, the rules on that in uh, in DC? Oh, it's convoluted. Uh, recreational marijuana. You're you're allowed to smoke marijuana, but you can't buy it. And we have medical marijuana, but it's it's but a you very can't sell it. you can't sell it can't buy it you can grow it oh um, you can well and there may be a grow, grow room downstairs from the studio i'm not sure <laughs> i won't ask yeah don't don't ask don't tell um and this is actually related um you may not know this but both of us are cancer survivors i did not know about uh, and mazel tov. and and you you first had cancer in your 20s um i waited till my 30s but in my case um surviving cancer kind of radicalized me it, it 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 told me that i only have so much time on this planet i want to do something and i look at everything you're doing today and i'm like shouldn't you just be on a beach you're a wealthy guy you could hang out you could you could drink the best cocktails from but your, but you're doing this i'm doing this. what's going on from your lips to god's ear yeah i uh tell you the truth i was i'm just about at the point where i could do that but I think if there's seven and a half billion people on earth, five billion of them do not live in anything like the world that you and I know. No formal rights, no legal rights, no property rights. There are no bank accounts. They're just, they're, 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 I don't want to say primitive because it's pejorative, but they're outside the modern world as you and I know it. I think that we can fix that in five years with the capital I have and the technologists I have and with the feds off my back, for whatever reasons, God, if the fucking feds here, I don't know if you were, if, if you knew how much of my life in the last 20 years was dealing with fucking feds and all the trouble I get in for everything I do and everything I say and this and that, if they would get off my back in five years, five billion people could have a different life. And, and it just so anyway, that's what I want to do. And then I'm see if I sat on a beach now, knowing that I wouldn't enjoy it. It's my probably my my guilty Catholic upbringing. But I would probably sit there and say, I just couldn't enjoy it, knowing what I do now. If I give it five years and can get all this stuff rolled out and implemented, and going, I believe me, there will be no more sybaritic person in the world. I will be on a beach. I will be enjoying whatever time is left me, and I will just enjoy the hell out of myself. But I think I can gut it out for five years. I just need to get these lovely people, though they be. Uh, uh, boy, if this is quite a this is quite a town. 
anyway, I just need them out of the way, and then I can do that, and then I'm going to sit on a beach, and no one will hear from me again. You know that cocktail is going to taste better if you've empowered five billion people in the process. It is, and yeah. I think I can gut it out for, for that's how every day, every night I go to sleep thinking, why am I pushing through this bullshit? I got five billion people counting on me to just do it, and when I and after that, uh, I believe me, I will be, I will be somewhere enjoying myself the rest of my life. I will join you for that cocktail. Welcome. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Great to see you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Make sure to subscribe and rate our podcast so we can reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.